Well, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, you'll have guessed by now that I am here as a late stand-in. And uh, I'm not sure how much to explain because I'm not sure how much of it's my fault. Um, but uh, it was David Meredith who was supposed to be here. And he called me up at the last moment saying he had to be somewhere else and could I stand in for him. Uh, and when that happens, then... Uh, Frequently what happens are other things that get in the way as well. And uh, I since then discovered that it was announced last week that Dr. Ferguson was going to be preaching here today. So I have two things to say to anyone who has made a point of coming here to hear Dr. Ferguson. First of all, I fully sympathize with you. And then I can only recommend that you come back this evening. And there's an advert for the evening service. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your welcome. It's really good to be here. Um, ETS, Edinburgh Theological Seminary. I'd far rather talk about Edinburgh Theological Seminary than about me, by the way. Uh, we have many connections with this church, and we want that to continue. We have many connections with many churches within the free church and outside of the free church. We are an education provider, but an education provider for ministry and mission work for Bible-centered educa uh, theological education. And uh, we have the uh, rather unique privilege in being located in the very center of Edinburgh, five minutes drive, five minutes walk rather, away from Waverley Station, which makes ETS hugely accessible for our students and staff. And it means that students can come from all over the place. We have, we have two students that come from the north of England. Every week, they get the first train on a Tuesday, and uh, they stay overnight, and then they go back on the Wednesday. They're part-time students, and that is cheaper for them to do that than to stay in Edinburgh. So we're hugely blessed to have um, location uh, right at the heart of Edinburgh. We're also blessed to have an, uh, have an academic uh, uh, association with Glasgow University, so if you, which means that if you do a BTH at ETS, you graduate from Glasgow University. They don't t tell us the content of what to believe or what to teach. As long as we teach to a good academic standard, they are happy with uh, their relationship with us. That is a huge privilege, and it means that we are that uh, we can attract students who want a rigorous and a quality education. Uh, in theological training. Of course, training for ministry and mission work goes beyond the academic, and we hope that we meet many needs that the church identifies, not just the free church, but the church elsewhere, beyond the free church, the wider church in Scotland, and beyond. And we have recently opened a center for mission headed up by Dr. Alistair Wilson, and he is going to be organizing short courses as well as more academic courses, which will provide, we hope, for the needs of missionaries in whatever capacity they are all over the world. And so it's a massive privilege to be involved in that. And I would ask you, please, once again, to please pray for us. Uh, pray for us as an education provider and as a trainer for uh, ministers, missionaries, workers, uh, in various capacities as they go to serve God in gospel work in various parts of the world. Thank you so much for your interest 
in ETS. I know that you've heard of us and that you know what we do. And if you're ever in Edinburgh and you have half an hour to spare and you've never visited our building, which is so historic in its appearance and in some of the rooms that we have, we can, the, some of our rooms contain some really interesting historical items, then please um, don't be afraid of ringing the doorbell. You have to ring the doorbell. You can't just walk in because of security. But please ring the doorbell and we will be delighted to show you around uh, because this is your college. It belongs to the church as a whole and we want to make it accessible. I want to also um, apologize to the children. I suppose I could have come up with a very, very quick uh, children's address, but when I do that, I found to my cost that I always get my facts wrong and uh, I would have been reminded of it afterwards. So I uh, really do apologize for not, apologize to the children for not having been prepared enough uh, to speak to them this morning. We're going to read together in the New Testament and the Gospel according to John and chapter 20. And we're going to take up the reading at verse 19. John chapter 20 and verse 19. It was quite a long reading, so I'll read it reasonably quickly because I want us to think about the whole of this passage that focuses on the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. John 20 and verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples, when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then, Peter, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Dinamis, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. 
Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, but a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is God's word. Let's pray for a few moments. Our Father in heaven, we pray that, the, that you will open up our hearts. That We pray that as we um, reflect together on this great chapter, and as we're drawn back into the great truth that Jesus died and rose again and appeared after his resurrection. We pray that that truth will be brought home in new and living ways to us as your Holy Spirit dwells within us and opens up our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. We must never relegate the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to the irrelevant. We're accustomed to thinking about the ministry of Jesus as the ministry before the cross. But there was a ministry after the resurrection as well. And I'd be concerned if we were to concentrate more on the pre-cross ministry of Jesus than the post-resurrection appearances, albeit there were differences. For one thing, there weren't the miracles that there were before the cross. There was no walking on the water. There was no feeding of the 5,000. There was no raising from the dead. There were no healings as far as we know. The ministry of Jesus after his resurrection from the dead was different from before. It was also confined to a few people at certain select occasions. His disciples, people who followed him, of course, more than the 12 disciples, but they were, his appearances were confined. They were focused on a number of, a handful of times when he came to his disciples, when he appeared before them for particular reasons. I count at least five, but again, it's intriguing, isn't it, to go through the Gospels and to see how many there were and to try and come to some conclusion. My question this morning is very simple. 
As I said, this is a one-off. I'm standing in at at, uh, short notice. So we're going to keep things very, very simple this morning. I'm going to ask, what was the purpose of him staying in the world between the resurrection and the ascension? That period of time between the resurrection and the ascension was 40 days. And like I say, during these 40 days, he appeared at certain times to certain people. I'm going to ask, why? Why was there this period of 40 days? And what are we to make of it? What are we to learn from it? We're not told specifically, there isn't a verse at the end of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John that says, this is why Jesus stayed in the world for 40 days. But the context, the story itself, the narrative, the history ought to inform us and ought to lead us to an informed conclusion or perhaps more than one informed conclusion. I count six reasons Six reasons why Jesus, and I'd like to suggest these six reasons to you this morning. Why Jesus, why there was this period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Of course, in his death and in his resurrection, he had completed, he had fulfilled the work that God the Father had given given him to do, to pay the price for our sin on the cross and defeat the power of death on our behalf. In his resurrection, death was vanquished. That is why Easter is such a glorious time for the church. As is every Lord's Day, as is every day, if you belong to Jesus, if you follow him. Because every day is is a day that's lived in the light of Jesus' resurrection. And yet there was this period, wasn't there? He wasn't taken up to heaven right away as soon as he rose from the dead. There was this this period where he remained in the earth for these 40 days. Here's my first reason. First of all, he remained in the world to expound the necessity of his death. Let me just put that in simple terms. To explain why he died. So that people would come to an understanding that his death was not some kind of unfortunate accident that shouldn't have happened, but that his death was the eternal plan of God. And it had to happen because there was no other way in which we could be saved from sin. He had to die. And you take up You discover this in Luke's gospel. Here's one occasion when we discover this. On the same day that he rose from the dead, there were two of his disciples making their way back from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And these two disciples were dejected. They couldn't get their heads around what they had witnessed that day. They had seen the person who they had come to believe was God himself, and they had seen him arrested and tried and nailed to a wooden cross and they had watched him die on that cross his body taken down from the cross and wrapped up and laid in a tomb and so it's not it's not difficult to understand how they could, they were confused they couldn't understand what was happening 
Neither could they understand the reports that they had heard that that same day, that first day of the week, that when his disciples had gone to the tomb expecting to find the body there, they had found the tomb empty. But again, they didn't know what to make of it. Where did they go from here? How were they to understand these strange events? And they were then accompanied by Jesus. Unbeknown to them, it was Jesus who asked them, what were you discussing along the way? They told him. They shared their frustration with him, their sadness, their darkness. And he began to explain to them. He took the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and he began to explain to them why it was necessary for the Son of God to have to die on the cross in order to fulfill the plan of God that was outlined in the prophets and in the sacrifices and in the feasts of the Old Testament and as the only way where our sin could be forgiven. So these two disciples, they were drawn back into the Old Testament. And as this explanation was made, Everything began to fall into place. Their hearts began to burn within them. And they were revived in their spirit. Then they realized who this stranger was who had explained all of this. It was none other than Jesus himself. As he sat down to break bread with them in their house. And once again in John chapter 20, we we find exactly the same thing. Jesus explaining the reason for his death. The reason why he had to die. That it wasn't some kind of option. It was necessary for him to pay the price without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness. So that's the first thing then. To expound the necessity or to explain the necessity of his death. But then the second reason that I can find in these words is to authenticate the reality and the nature of his uh, resurrection. In chapter 20, he appears in verse 19 on that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The marks were unmistakable. And if there had been any confusion at the first sight of Jesus, that confusion was quickly cleared up when they came to the understanding whether they could understand how this had happened or not, this truly was Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had seen being nailed to a Roman cross and whose body, whose dead body, had been taken from the cross and laid in a tomb. They knew how utterly impossible this was. It was just as impossible for the first disciples as it would be in the 21st century. Resurrection from the dead is impossible. Resurrection from death on the cross was impossible. Nobody ever lived to tell the tale who was crucified by the Romans. And there yet he, there he was, making a point of 
showing the disciples his hands and his feet in order for them to be in no doubt whatsoever that this was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who was now raised from the dead. Because this would be the message that they would carry to Jerusalem and to Judea and all parts of the world. This would be the substance of the gospel that would be taken to beyond their generation and beyond their borders to the Gentiles and to Asia and to the Roman Empire and to Europe and beyond. That Jesus died for our sin to reconcile us to God and he rose again, triumphing over death. They had to be absolutely sure of the message that they were going to take to the world this was where they were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. There was absolutely no doubt whatsoever as to his identity. It's of crucial importance, isn't it? That it goes beyond that they think it was Jesus, but that they know it was Jesus. Here are the eyewitnesses that we depend on 2,000 years later, whose testimony we believe to be the truth and whose testimony they were insistent upon was grounded on reality and what they had seen. Peter says it in another way, albeit referring to another incident in, in chapter 1 of Second Peter, when he says, we did not follow cleverly devised fables or myths. This is not mythical. This is truth. The gospel is grounded on historical truth the historical truth that Jesus rose from the dead. They tell me that, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I read somewhere that David Livingston, when he died in Africa, the great explorer and missionary, he died in Africa. And they tell me that when he, they were taking his body back home to be buried in London, that there was some doubt for some reason as to the identity of his body. And uh, someone remembered that David Livingston had been attacked by a lion. And the lion had mauled his arm. And so they looked. They made a point of looking at his arm. And sure enough, there were the marks. The, mark, the arm was disfigured by the lion. And that was how they knew for sure that it was David Livingston. His identity was confirmed. Here is the confirmation of Jesus' identity as the Son of God who died and rose again. And uh, it's important for the church in every age not only to know that Jesus died and rose again, but that he rose to represent us. That here, here was the God who became human in the first place in order to become one of us, in order to come alongside us. The word became flesh, John 1 tells us. And there is a particular humanness about this passage that I've just read. He appears to his disciples. He wants to be with them. He wants to assure them. He wants to show them the reality of what's happened. He wants to eat with them. I can't help noticing the paradox 
in the way that John's gospel opens. In John 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here at the end of John's gospel, that Word who became flesh says to his disciples, come and have breakfast. There's a marvelous humanness about the Word who became flesh. This is God who wants to have breakfast with his disciples. He wants to eat the fish and eat the bread with his disciples. He's one of us. He came to be in our nature, to represent us. And he continues to do so in heaven at the Father's right hand. He continues to make intercession for us. We have someone in heaven who understands our pain and our darkness and our trouble. So he rose to authenticate, he appeared to authenticate the reality and the nature of his resurrection. But then a third reason is this. He remained in the world in order to reiterate their calling. Verse 21 of chapter 20, he says to his disciples, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Later on in the next chapter, in the Lake of Galilee, Jesus finds these same disciples out in a boat on the lake. And it's perhaps not surprising that in all the confusion, the disciples may have lost sight for a few moments or for a day or so of Jesus' initial command. Remember when Jesus met them at the very beginning, the same place, the side of the Lake of Galilee, and he said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Well, Jesus was not finished with them. They were still going to be fishers of men. In many ways, their life was only just beginning. They were still to go out with the gospel. Their work was not to be in fishing boats. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what Jesus had for them. He was going to send them out with a message of the gospel, and they were going to tell people what they had seen and how God had intervened in the human world to restore men and women, broken and guilty men and women back to himself. And so Jesus reenacts this calling by almost exactly the same process of events that you find in Luke chapter 5. You can't help comparing what you have at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus meets with the disciples in the boat and where they fished all night and they haven't caught anything, and Jesus tells them to let down the net into the water and they catch this horde of fish, more than they can manage. And at the end of the gospel, in John's gospel, where almost exactly the same thing happens, you can't, they must have thought back. They must have reminisced. It's history repeating itself. And that initial occasion was the moment when Jesus said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And now he's saying it again. This is a reminder to them that their life's calling was not catching fish. It was going to be spreading the gospel. But it was also to empower their calling. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20, 
where Jesus says, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You've probably read that and thought, what's happening here? What exactly happened at that moment? First day of the week, Jesus meets with the disciples. He's risen from the dead. And he breathes and he announces, receive. He commands them to receive the Holy Spirit. Did anything happen here? Well, not surprisingly, there are many different views on this chapter. I'm not going to confuse them. I'm not going to confuse you by, I'm not going to waste any time. I'm just going to suggest that Jesus is looking forward to what is going to happen on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the New Testament church the newly formed New Testament church as they met together just after his ascension. And Jesus is looking towards that day and he, and he almost acts prophetically or symbolically where he prophesies that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. And it is in the power of the Holy Spirit on the basis of his death and resurrection. Remember that the coming of the Holy Spirit took place on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that the church would be empowered to take the gospel into all the world. And by that power, the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit... They would be identified, they would find their identity as the people of God and that the gospel would reach home into the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Look what happened on that very first occasion, the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and he began to tell people what happened when Jesus died. 3,000 men and women came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us. That the Holy Spirit dwells within the church. The Holy Spirit dwells within each believer. Informing us, guiding us, reminding us, convicting us. And drawing us and leading and guiding us into new and living days of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remember that we are indwelt by God himself. What a unique privilege. Receive the Holy Spirit. We have received the Holy Spirit if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the receiving of the Holy Spirit, they were empowered to live as Jesus commanded them, to live as they follow Jesus and to make him known. But then Jesus goes on and he, and again, one more reason, which was to characterize their missional calling. Look at chapter 20 and verse 23, where he says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, what does this mean? What, what are we to make of this promise that the disciples, does it mean that they somehow had the inherent power themselves in their own right to, say, to go to somebody in the street and say, your sins are forgiven, and to go to someone else and say, your sins aren't forgiven? Of course not. 
No one has that right. No one has that authority by themselves. But remember the context in which Jesus says this. It's the context of the disciples going out with the message of the gospel. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What was he sending them to do? He was sending them to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus died for your sins to reconcile you to God. Do you believe this? And if the answer is yes, then your sins are forgiven. God has announced the forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And the disciples have every authority to go to people and to tell them with no dubiety whatsoever that insofar as they have come to faith in Jesus, that their sin is forgiven. No matter what their past is, no matter what kind of a mess they've made of their lives, no matter how far they've wandered from God, by faith in Jesus Christ, God pronounces the forgiveness of sins, which means that the wiping of the slate clean. But the flip side is that insofar as a person does not believe the gospel, then your sin is not forgiven. It's a very serious note to this, isn't it? It's a very solemn passage. Because the gospel is solemn. It's about our relationship with God. And the Bible tells us we can know what that relationship is by way of our response to what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the disciples had no inherent power in themselves, but insofar as they preached the gospel faithfully, then then men and women were to know that their sin was forgiven. So we've covered five reasons so far. Let me give you one more. And this time we're wandering into chapter 21, the next chapter. I want to say the last reason that I can think of why Jesus stayed in the world for 40 days before he ascended to the Father was to characterize their pastoral calling. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is very simple. In the way that Jesus went after the wandering sheep, we are to imitate Jesus' care and loving concern within the church. Look at the two examples that are there. Thomas, chapter 20. Thomas wasn't there on that first occasion, so he missed out on Jesus, on seeing Jesus on that first occasion, which meant that the disciples had to go after him. Look at the way the disciples go after him. They go to him, they make a point of saying to him, we have seen the Lord. I can imagine the, co- the conversation. How can that possibly be? Resurrection is impossible. I watched Jesus being taken from the cross. He was dead. They wrapped him in linen. They put him in the grave. You can't come back from that. The disciples say to him, look, we know that this is illogical. We know it's impossible. But we're telling you we saw the Lord. We don't know how it happened, but we're telling you 
it happened. The Lord is risen. He's risen from the dead, which means that God raised him from the dead. And it means that death has been vanquished. It means that death has been defeated. It means that you and I can look at death straight in the face and know that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who does, lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the great message of the gospel because it's truth. The truth that is grounded on Jesus' death and resurrection. So they went to him and they told him, we have seen the Lord. They exercised, if you want to put it in ecclesiological terms, they exercised their pastoral oversight over Thomas. And that's what he needed to happen. And that's what they needed to do for him. And that's what we need to do for one another. When you notice someone who's despondent and who's perhaps lost the way, you don't go to him and make a pest of yourself and try and point the finger at him or her, but you gently lead them back. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6. If we see a brother or a sister going astray, we need to humbly and gently restore that person prayerfully. In the spirit of Jesus. Here's Jesus leading the way. Here the disciples leading the way. The, great, the other great example of course is Peter himself. Who had denied that he knew Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed. As they warmed themselves beside the fire. And as that servant girl asked Peter. You were one of them as well weren't you? And he said no I wasn't. And now having watched Jesus dying. And now having come to terms with his resurrection. He's wondering if he's going to have to live with the guilt of this for the rest of his life. And he's wondering. What's Jesus going to say? Well eventually Jesus does say something. He says Simon do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And I wonder if Simon said. That's the wrong question. Well, within himself. That's the wrong question. But it wasn't the wrong question. Jesus never gets the question wrong. Jesus knows that there is no explanation as to why Peter denied Jesus. There is no explanation. It's the question I would ask. Well, why did you do that? There is no explanation. Jesus goes beyond that and reaches out and reaches into the future and reminds Simon that his blood, the blood that was shed on the cross, covers our sins past, present and future. And it's a terrific reminder to us today because in a large gathering like this, there are all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances There are some of you who perhaps are not Christians at all to whom I would say I would give once again an invitation that you hear every single Sunday from this lectern to come to faith in Jesus. The invitation is yours. Come to faith in Jesus. But when we do begin to follow Jesus, we discover that life can be very, very difficult We're assailed by all kinds of influences and conflicts and temptations. And we get it wrong time and time 
again, and we have to live with the guilt of getting it wrong regularly as God's people, just like Peter did. And here is Jesus reaching out to Peter in grace and in love and with the message that all is not lost. You have a future as one of my disciples. You are restored. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? It's a very searching question, isn't it? It's hugely searching. Because it automatically brings up these inconsistencies in our character. The inconsistencies that people don't see. Stuff that goes on in our own hearts. Do you love Jesus? Then listen to him. And follow him in our hearts and in our minds and in our day-to-day activities. At the very beginning of John, the first chapter, this is what John says of Jesus. He says, we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how John sums up his whole experience with Jesus as he looks back over it. We saw his glory. Now, some people think, well, he meant the time that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and when his appearance shone like the sun. But I rather think that John was talking about the whole of Jesus' character, his ministry, his death, his person, his death, his resurrection, and his life. His ministry between resurrection and ascension in which he made a point of reaching the wandering disciple in order to bring him back. That's the glory of the God who not only, who not only shines like the sun in majestic splendor, but who came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost and who delights in restoring us back to where we should be. He restores my soul and makes me to walk in the path of righteousness. Do you love him? Do you love him? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we reflect on the wonder of Jesus' character and person. We pray that we might be drawn to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts may be open to his voice. We pray that we might be changed. We pray that we might be brought to that place of repentance. But Lord, that we may be led by you into a glorious future a future of new discoveries and new obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen. I'm going to close our service by singing a song, Christ is made the sure foundation.